On February 15, 1947, an Avianca Airlines DC-4 that was headed for Quito, Ecuador, slammed into a 14,000-foot peak of the Andean Mountains, and all on board were killed, including a young New Yorker by the name of Glenn Chambers. Earlier that day in the Miami airport, Chambers had written a letter to his mother on a scrap of paper he apparently found in the airport, and between the mailing of the letter and the receiving of it by his mother, he had died in the crash. And when his mother received the letter, to her shock, she discovered that her son had written his last letter to her on a scrap of advertisement on which on the back side was the single question, why? And that's the nightmare question. I mean, that's the question we ask when our worst nightmares come true, when things we think should never happen, happen. Or when things we think should happen, don't happen. We ask the question, why? You know, the prophet Habakkuk is singular among the prophets because he alone of all the prophets doesn't have a message for Israel or Judah or one of the Gentile nations around Habakkuk has a question for God. And his question essentially is, why? Why don't you do something about what is happening here in Judah? And God says, I am doing something about it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans in. And they're going to clean up in there. And Habakkuk's thinking, well, I'm sorry I asked. Because that led to a second question. How can you do that? Why did you do it? Why don't you do it? How can you allow that to happen? Habakkuk was a prophet with a question mark. And when tragedy strikes, when ordeals come, the question we ask is the question why. Not in some generic sense. We ask, why now? Why me? Why this? I mean, Christians sometimes like to quote Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, if God's against us, it doesn't matter who's for us. But if God be for us, who can be against us? But often the question we ask is not so much Paul's question, but more the question of Gideon in Judges 6, verse 12. If the Lord be with us, he asks of the angel, why then is all this befallen us? Now, this week, when, weekend, we've been talking about the evidence for God, the historical evidence, the basis for our belief, the foundation for our faith. But as I mentioned this morning, the greatest objection to God is never philosophical or historical. It is emotional. It's the problem of evil. Philosophically, it's called the problem of compatibility. If there is a good, all-loving creator, how can evil exist in this world? And that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes tonight. Before we get there, let me just take a moment here to thank this congregation for having me come down. I, I, I appreciate Alan uh, mentioning me last week, or last year. I appreciate Bob not using his veto power to prevent it from happening. And uh, I, I have known Bob and Cherry for many years, and I love Bob and Cherry Hutto. Don't anyone have any doubts about that? They are special people to me. But to have come down and have met you, my, some of my greatest treasures in life are my friends. 
And to leave here with so many more friends I had than when I came here, you have enriched me beyond your ability to understand. And I'll go back home. I preach at a small church in a small farming community. We have about 25 folks who show up most times. On uh, Wednesday nights, we might hit 15, 16, 17. And we're glad to have everybody. But to come down to be with a group of this size, uh, the... the, uh, The audiences have just been stupendous, I think, this weekend. And to get to know you better and to talk with you and and to meet some of the folks I've met, I'll uh, carry you with me in my heart when I go back home. I'm leaving tonight trying to get to Nashville, spend the night with some friends, and six-hour drive home tomorrow. And so I hope that God will, in his mercy, uh, grant that we can be together again sometime. In talking about the problem of evil, of course, what we're trying to reconcile is how a good God can allow evil to exist. And the more sensitive the person is, the harder this seeming incompatibility hits them. Now, atheists have no problem with the problem of evil, and don't ever let an atheist try to saddle you with the problem of evil. If there is no God, there is no reason for what we call evil, any more than there's a reason for what we call good. Everything that happens in the universe of the atheist is nothing but sheer, blind, accidental chance. Atoms slamming together and producing certain situations. There is no problem of evil for the unbeliever. The only person who has a problem with evil is the believer. The one who's trying to hang on to belief. In a good, loving father, like the the father in Mark chapter 9, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And listen, when you lose someone to, to death, when you come down with some dread sickness, when somebody breaks your heart, you're going to struggle with doubt, and you're going to struggle with hanging on to your faith in God. And I'll try to say something about the problem of evil. I'll try to speak to that a bit tonight. And let me begin by running by you four considerations that, in my mind at least, suggest that there is no incompatibility with the existence of evil in the world that God made. And I'll try to move from the more simple to the more complex. But to me at least, these thoughts sort of resolve the problem. And the first consideration is that God did not cause evil. God is not to blame. Evil is the result of the creature, not the creator. Evil resulted when man chose against his creator with some terrible consequences that ensued. So don't blame God for the problem of evil. Blame man for choosing evil. And that might suggest the question, well, why did God make man so that he could choose evil? And that leads to the second consideration, which I think is the most profound of the four. Namely, that God made man so that man could choose evil with the capability of choosing evil because God is love. God wanted a creature who could respond to him in love. He didn't want a robot. 
He didn't want a puppet that could do nothing other than it had been programmed to do. He wanted a creature that had free will and the ability to respond lovingly to the love that he showed for that individual. But to have a creature like that, you got to give that creature the possibility of making the wrong choice, of choosing evil. There's a picture somewhere in Belgium in a museum there that depicts an angel talking to God. The angel has just realized the kind of world God is getting ready to create, a world that has free will, and the angel is begging, don't do it. But God wanted beings who of their own free will could respond to him lovingly. That's the nature of love. Love seeks a loving response. Love cannot be compelled. It cannot be coerced. It can only be freely given. And to have a creature capable of that, you have to have a creature with free will. And so that's what God made. So someone says, well, why couldn't there be free will without man having to suffer the terrible consequences of misusing that free will? And that leads to the third consideration, namely that you cannot separate free will from the consequences. They are bound up together. Uh, When my older son, Gary, was uh, eight, nine, somewhere around there, I I caught him playing with matches. The the way I caught him playing with matches is that he set fire to the back of the uh, recliner I was sitting in at the time. And I got up, I snatched the matches from him, I put out the fire, and I lectured Gary about playing with matches. I said, bad things happen when little boys play with matches. Don't let me catch you playing with matches again. It wasn't a week later. We were down to mom and dad's down the road on the farm, and mom had some uh, plant pots hanging in macrame plant hangers from the from the roof of the porch, and I happened to walk out onto the porch, and one of those macrame plant hangers, the flaming torch about to burn through the, the roof, and Gary, the firebug, standing over here with a box of matches in his hand. Now, what would you have said if I had put out the fire, and I said, Gary, please don't play with matches, you're going to burn the house down, and Gary reacted to that by going over and setting fire to the dog. And so I put out the dog, and I said, Gary, please, please don't play with matches, and And uh, he walks out and sets fire to the garage. I keep overruling the consequences of the choices he makes. You would have said, Kenny, you need to speak a little more strongly to Gary than you are. And I did. I gave him a spanking. And I felt badly doing it because I remember about his age when I burned down a corncob pile playing with matches. I guess pyromania runs in the family. But if I had kept overruling the consequences of Gary's choices, I would have raised a moral monster. Maturity is the ability to bear the responsibility for the choices that you make. And God made us with free will. And because God is wanting to mature us, we have to bear the consequences for the choices we make. And someone says, well, I understand all that. I understand how you can't separate responsibility from consequences. But why does God have to let it get out of hand? Why six million Jews? 
Why incurable disease? Why do bad, terrible things happen to little innocent children? And the only answer I have in response to that is, I think God is holding down the consequences of man's free choices through things like government, through things like the church, through things like the family, maybe in other providential ways, I think God is tamping down the consequences of the choices man makes. Were he not, we probably would have wiped ourselves out long ago. So you can take those and you can work over them and and, and see what you think. Uh, But again, to my mind, I I can see how In the same world, there can be a good, loving God and the presence of terrible evil. Now, let's go to the Bible and look at an explanation given the problem of evil. There may be the oldest explanation that's ever been given the problem of evil. And it's found in the book of Job. Turn to the book of Job. Turn to chapter 4. And I'll tell you about the doctrine of Eliphaz. You know, Job may well be the oldest book of the Bible. There are some reasons why scholars who look at such things uh, think that this may be the first book of inspiration ever written, even predating the books of Moses. Now, I, I don't know about that, but it's certainly an old book. And isn't it interesting that in one of these oldest books of the Bible, it's the question why, the problem of evil that comes up. Now, you remember the story of Job. I know you know it. I'm going to tell it so you know I know it. You know, Job, the richest man in the East, upright, feared God, eschewed evil. Nobody like him. I mean, when he walked into a room, men shut up. When he spoke, when, when he walked in, men stood up. When he spoke, men shut up because wisdom had spoken. And now this great man is sitting out on an ash heap, covered with boils, because in a very short period of time, within a 24-hour period, I think, he got some of the worst news that anybody has ever received. He, he learns that he has been wiped out financially. Everything he has is gone. He learns that his ten children were killed in a freak windstorm. His wife, who is a basket case, having lost everything he lost, especially the kids... Her only solution is curse God and die. Let God take you out of here. Curse him, Job. He'll, he'll deal with you and then you won't be in this pain any longer. And then he comes down with some hideous, horrible disease. And he's got some broken pottery and he's trying to scrape off some of the flesh to get some relief. Have you ever seen someone in such pain that you don't even recognize them? Their features have been so distorted and contorted by the pain they're in, you can't even recognize them. Now that's Job. And he's got three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they come and they sit with him for a week and they say nothing. And that was the best thing they did because as soon as they opened their mouth, they only increased his agony. Because in addition to all that he had lost... They tried to blame him for it. They tried to infect him with the guilt, the shame of guilt. And in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz speaks first. And he's got it all figured out. 
And we can frame his argument in the form of uh, a syllogism. Major premise, minor premise, uh, conclusion. Major premise is found in chapter 4, verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? In other words, Job, bad things don't happen to good people. That's his major premise. Minor premise, Job, bad things are happening to you. I mean, just look at you. Go to chapter 22. Here's the conclusion. Chapter 22, verse 5. Bad things don't happen to good people, but terrible things are happening to you. Therefore, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end. You must be the chief of sinners, Job. Oh, you had, you had us fooled. We thought you were a good man, a righteous man. But after seeing what happened to you, you must be the chief of sinners. Now, that's the doctrine of Eliphaz. If tragedy strikes, God has tracked you down. God's caught up with you. The hound of heaven has finally arrived at your doorstep, and you're being punished for your sins. Now, to show you how popular that is, turn to John chapter 9. It wasn't just Eliphaz who had that idea. John chapter 9, verse 1 says that Jesus passes by a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Apparently, the way God punished some parents for their sins was by striking their child. So here's a man born blind, congenital illness. What, who, who sinned? Did this man do something? Now, how he could have been responsible for anything since he was born blind, I haven't figured that out yet, but they had figured it out apparently. And look what Christ says in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This man isn't suffering because he's sinned. He sinned or his parents. He's suffering because he is a chosen vessel of God. Now there's a revolutionary thought. That maybe the reason bad things have come to us is not because we're the worst of men, but because we're the best of men. I mean, Job, Jesus, Paul, they suffered terribly. And they were the best of men. Turn to Acts chapter 28. Paul, on the way to Rome, is shipwrecked, and they uh, land on Malta. And the natives, verse 2, showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling, because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up suddenly and fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, if you ever need a reason for 
not putting much credence in what people think about you, good or bad, here it is. In about two verses, Paul goes from being a murderer to a god, and they're wrong both times. You know why they thought he was a murderer? Because he got snake bit. Oh, he got away from Poseidon. This storm must have been Poseidon after him. But vengeance, justice, capital J, has caught up with him. And so the Jews and Gentiles bought into the doctrine of Eliphaz. Now turn to Luke 13. Let me show you what Christ says about the doctrine of Eliphaz. Luke 13, the first five verses. Christ talks about the two types of evil that are in this world, moral and natural. What insurance companies call the acts of God. Verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If suffering is punishment for sin, not a one of us is exempt. You will all likewise perish if suffering is punishment for sin. Now, the doctrine of Eliphaz is not the answer to the problem of suffering. Well, an ancient philosopher by the name of Epicurus came up with an idea that's been popular. He framed it this way. The reason there is suffering in this world is either because God, who is a good God, is not strong enough to stop evil, or God has the strength to stop it, but doesn't. So the problem is either that God is good but weak, or that God is strong but not good. If he is strong enough, he'd stop it. Or if he is good enough and strong enough, he'd stop it. But since we've got evil, either he's good but weak, or not good but strong. Not so long ago, there's a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi who had a child born with progeria, that disease where an eight-year-old looks like they're 80. And he's struggling with trying to understand why that syndrome hit his family. And he came up with the same thing that Epicurus came up with. And what he finally decided is you can't doubt the goodness of God, so he must not be a, an omnipotent God. And the problem with that is, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says God is not only omnipotent, but He is all good. So the doctrine of Epicurus doesn't work for me. Now let me tell you what works for me. The answer to the problem of evil. In Matthew 7... Christ, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, talks about two men who build houses. Both men, the wise and the foolish, have their house hit by a storm. Neither one's exempt 
Folks, we live in a sin-cursed world. And it doesn't matter how righteous we are. We live in a sin-cursed world. And somehow or other, the curse is going to find us out and do its worst on us. It's going to get to us. The storm is going to hit. The question is not whether we get hit by the storm or not. The question is, have we built on the rock? They who build on the rock, when the storm passes, they're standing. They who build on sand are going to suffer loss. And you know what's going to help us get through the storm? It's not talking about the doctrine of Eliphaz and the doctrine of Epicurus. It's not talking about the problem of of incompatibility. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, when pain is to be borne, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. To know that God still loves us, If God let His Son endure hell on earth, how do we think we're going to escape? But He still loves us. Let me show you a verse that underscores that. Turn to Romans chapter 5. This is one of the most amazing verses that I've come across in Scripture. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 6. Paul says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love unto us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, you might want to write alongside verse 7. I'm not in this verse. Paul makes a distinction there between a righteous man and a good man. I'm not sure I understand the distinction. If we were a righteous man, Paul says, maybe someone would die for us. If we were a good man, maybe a few more would die for us. The problem is, Paul's already said, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. So we're not in verse 7. I'll tell you where we are. We're in verse 6. We're weak without strength. We're in verse 6 in that word ungodly. We're in verse 8 in that word sinners. We've missed the mark every way you can miss it. We're in verse 10 in that word enemies. You think about the best person you know, if they're not in Christ, they are the enemy of God. Now, we're in those verses. Now, who's going to die for the weak, ungodly, sinning enemies of God? Verse 8. I like the King James. But God commendeth his love toward us. Have you ever gotten a letter of recommendation? I mean, you're going to apply for a job and they don't know you and they, you, you, you want someone who knows them to put in a good word for you. So you get a letter of recommendation. Verse 8 says that the God of heaven thought it necessary to send us puny men 
a letter of recommendation. And what was it he was recommending? It wasn't his power. I mean, just go out and look up the heavens tonight and realize that it took tremendous power to create everything you see up there, everything you see around us, to make everything out of nothing. Now, that's power. And it wasn't his wisdom he was recommending. You know, the the astronomers talk about how the orbit of the earth is in just the right position and distance from the sun, a little too farther We'd all freeze to death a little too closer. We'd all burn up. We talk about the balance of nature. Great deal of wisdom built into this world. No, what God found necessary to commend to us was His love. He knew there'd be people who'd look at tragedy, who'd look at loss and suffering, and shake their fist at heaven and say, I cannot believe in a God who allows such terrible things to happen. And so God had to come up with one overwhelming, undeniable demonstration of His love that no one could ever doubt, and what was it? He sent His Son, verse 9, to save us from the wrath we were due because of our sins. And I mean, that got hold of Paul. That thought got hold of Paul. And so turn the page to Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 37, where Paul's, or or verse, uh, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep of the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, listen to me. If I lost my job... And I couldn't feed my family, and my kids were starving, and they came to me begging, Daddy, give us something to eat, and I had nothing to give them. That wouldn't convince me that God doesn't love me. And if thugs broke into my house and tied me up while they brutalized my family before my eyes, that wouldn't convince me that God doesn't love me. And if the government stepped in, stripped me of my civil rights, threw me in jail, threw the key away and fed me on bread and water, that wouldn't convince me that God doesn't love me. Paul had read the letter of recommendation from heaven. Paul knew what it cost God to save him from hell. And because of that, there was nothing that Paul could face or endure that would make him doubt the love of God. And just like C.S. Lewis said, when you are convinced of the love of God, You can get through about anything. You know, God is trying to bring us to the point where we mature to where we can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And where we can say with the Son, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And where we can say with Paul, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities. 
Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian dissenter, said that the only time the KGB ever got afraid of somebody was when they had taken everything from them. Their job, their family, their health, their freedom, they had taken everything from them, but they had not broken the spirit of the individual. That's when they got afraid. And I don't think the devil is ever more afraid than when he has touched us and taken everything from us. And our confession is still, Lord, I believe. You know, in um, Dickens' great story, A Tale of Two Cities, when it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, one of the main characters in that story is Sidney Carton. And he's not an admirable character in some way. But about halfway through the story, he figures out that he can redeem his worthless life by dying for his loved one's loved one. He would say, "'Tis a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done." And he arranges to take the place of a condemned man in the prison that his loved one loved. And to steal himself, to have the courage to go through with what he was going to go through with. There was a verse in the Bible that he recalled by my count four times in the book. I am the resurrection and the life. And relying on that, he takes this man's place, and then comes the day of execution. And they bring him out of the prison where he had been kept, and there's a little girl who's been caught up, a little seamstress girl who's been caught up in the madness that was the French Revolution. And she's brought out with him too, and some other prisoners, and she looks up at him and says, I'm not afraid but I'm small and weak. Would you hold my hand? And he takes her hand and they get in the carriage and it rumbles through the cobblestone streets of Paris and it pulls up in front of the guillotine. And they get out and the little girl looks up at him and says, I want to thank you. I think you were sent here by God for me. And they took the little girl up on the scaffold, and the seamstress women of Paris, who had nothing better to do, sitting around the square knitting, would count. They took the little girl up on the scaffold, laid her down, the steel fell, and the seamstress women said, 22. They took Sidney Carton up on the scaffold, and he remembered. I am the resurrection and the life. And they laid him down, the steel fell, and the women said, 23. Don't forget that there was one sent here by heaven for us. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He's been through it all. And what he tells us is, Fear not, don't be afraid.
When I was a kid, I loved going with my dad to my uncle's used furniture store in Rantoul. They're on South Lincoln, Chumley's Used Furniture. And I liked going there because Grandpa was often there, and, and I'd play Grandpa checkers, and we'd set up the board, and the checker game often went like this. Uh, I'd move, Grandpa'd move, I'd move, he'd move, and I'd jump him. He'd make another move, and I'd jump that. He might move another one, and I'd jump it. And by now, I'm thinking, man, I am cleaning the board with Grandpa. But there would always come a point in those games where Grandpa would pick up a checker, and he'd jump one of mine, but he wouldn't stop with just one. He'd jump another, and another, and another, and now he's down at my end of the board saying, crown me. And what I learned is that Grandpa didn't mind losing a few checkers if he knew he was headed for king's territory. Now that's where we can be. Remembering that our Lord, our God, is the resurrection and the life. And that the day will come because of His word and because of His love. We step from all the pain and sorrow of this world into eternal glory. God bless you as you deal with the the sorrows and, and the times when you cry out, why? Just like God's own son did. God bless you as you hang on through those times, remembering who is the resurrection and the life. If there's anyone here this evening who needs to join the side of Christ, be washed in the blood, be saved from the wrath to come by the blood that he has shed, if you'll repent of sins... Confess Him as your Lord and be buried in baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. You'll stand justified this night. If there's anyone who needs to respond, we invite you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.